Welcome to Positive Disintegration, a path to authenticity. Today we're going to share a conversation with Dr. Michael Pahofsky, who collaborated with Dabrowski and has been a friend and mentor to Chris. And we're releasing this episode to celebrate Michael's 90th birthday. In this conversation, we talk about how he met Dabrowski, some of his work, scientific approaches to the theory, and his perspectives on levels. So join Chris and I as we take a little peek behind the curtain and get some fascinating insights on the theory from a fascinating man. Hello, beautiful listeners, and welcome to Positive Disintegration. Today we've got a little bit of a different format. We've been waiting a long time to record a conversation with Michael, and we finally had the opportunity to do so when Chris last went to visit him. So this episode is basically a recording of that conversation, warts and all. But before we launch into our discussion, first a little bit about him, which will help you understand why it was so important to Chris and I to capture his voice and share it with you. Dr. Mark Wachowski is an eminent figure in the field of gifted education, and has dedicated his career to exploring the developmental possibilities of gifted individuals with an emphasis on emotional and spiritual giftedness. His extensive writings and research contributions have significantly enriched our understanding in these areas. For a period of eight years, Dr. Pahofsky collaborated closely with Dabrowski, the author of the theory of positive disintegration, and in doing so, gain profound insights into this influential concept. Michael is a senior fellow of the Institute for Educational Advancement and was a co-founder of UNASA, a camp for gifted youth that was established in 2002. His literary contributions include the book Mellow Out, They Say, If Only I Could, Intensities and Sensitivities of the Young and Bright, which delves into the complex emotional landscapes of gifted individuals. He also co-edited the books Living with Intensity and Off the Charts, Asynchrony in the Gifted Child. His work continues to inspire and guide educators, parents and the gifted community. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Michael Pahofsky. Later. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about meeting Dabrowski and your, your early work together. How did you meet? Well, I finished my doctorate at the University of Wisconsin. And my first, in my job, I was looking for a job, and I got a job in Canada, in Edmonton, Alberta. And I moved there in January, which meant driving there through the plains and the snow and blizzards and getting there and daytime temperatures were 20 below zero. And after I started working in the university and I was walking around town <clears throat> buying things to put in my apartment, chairs, tables, that kind of thing, I met someone who told me about Dr. Dombrowski that I shouldn't meet him because they're both Polish, which happened. I don't know, I don't remember how exactly it happened, but it happened. And so 
we met, we were talking, I met, I, I was at his house, and um, I knew his name, an Italian friend of mine was reading a review of his book, the little book, Positive Disintegration, and he asked me whether I knew him, I said I didn't, but when I met him, I said, are you the guy who says that psychoneurosis is not an illness, and he said yes. And then I said to him, what you have written that I could take and read? And, and he said he had several books and manuscripts. And he gave me some pages of a chapter he was working on in English. So I took it home and I tried to read it and it was all garbled. So I went back to him and I said, well, the People who translated, they didn't know what you were talking about. So then he sees this opportunity and said, oh, do you want to work with me? I said, okay, yes. So that's how our meeting was set up for two o'clock at Sunday afternoon. He would come to my place and we went over the text. I asked him line by line what he meant and I wrote it down. And that's how a good part of the book Mental Growth came about. But first you published the two papers in French, right? That, yeah. And they the, became the, the chapters. Or the that's right. Well, he, the text of the chapter, he got them translated into French and submitted to Annal Medico-Psychologique. Oh, thank you for pronouncing that because I keep doing a terrible job of it when I say it. They don't teach French in Connecticut. Well, I did take French in high school, actually, but I did very badly. Well, my next question kind of builds on that because I wanted to know what it was like the year after you worked together on those chapters, you ended up going with him to Esalen in California. And I wondered what it was like to give a workshop on the theory, I mean, only a year after you'd met him. It was quite a trip because the whole family was traveling, plus... The philosopher Andrei Kafchak and his wife. <laughs> so, so we traveled by car from Alberta all the way down to, to Esalen. Yes. And we got to Esalen, well, that was, you know, the 60s. It was quite interesting. One of the interesting things about Esalen is that they have a swimming pool, which has curved shape, so you cannot swim straight in it. Kind of, kind of prepares your mind to be open to things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, since Dombrowski wasn't secure in his English, he asked me to give presentations of his theory, which I did by simply um, repeating what he wrote. In, wrote. cannot say I had a very good understanding of the theory at the time, but that's how it went. So, Michael, it sounds like you got involved with his work in sort of a, I guess, a translative capacity. I don't know what you'd studied before that, but at what point did you sort of go, you know what, I actually have an interest in this theory. Um, Like, was it kind of immediate or did it take some time for you to personally sort of say, you know what, I'm on board with this and this is what I want to work with? I'm I'm interested in when you sort of, it dawned on you that this was what you wanted to do. Well, the way it happened was that I was doing 
my research for the degree in molecular biology, and I was getting books from the Book of the Month Club, one of them is History of Psychiatry, and I found that uh, pretty interesting reading. And um, the Murawski theory is all about the importance of emotions, because he recognized that that really guides our lives, our behavior. And uh, so I was interested in the life of emotions and communicating with others more directly than by means of sharing research ideas and things like that. I guess that's that's how it went. We- so with working with him, I my effort was to clever, clarify his ideas. And just for our listeners, your first PhD is in molecular biology. It is. And then you went back in 1970 to the University of Wisconsin at Madison to get your degree in counseling psychology or counseling and guidance, I think. At the time it was counseling and guidance became counseling psychology later. Hmm. So what was it like to go into counseling after working in science? It had its shocks. Because the thinking is very different. Scientific thinking is very different of thinking of people in counseling and education. The main, uh, the main difference is that in science, people argue in order to find out the right answer to a question, the right solution to a problem. In education, in counseling, when you start arguing about someone's work, they take it personally, even though you only want to clarify their ideas. So that was the, the first shock. The other shock was that people are not persuaded by logical arguments. That only works in science and maybe in philosophy. Well, I think that we see that problem still, or you know, beyond counseling, like in society, People are not always moved by logic or evidence. No, I think it's, it, it takes, probably it takes special typology to, to be drawn to critical thinking. Mm. Well, what are some of the highlights of your work? What are the things that you've enjoyed the most? What did I enjoy the most? Well, the big piece of work with Dombrowski was when he got a grant to put his theory to test and to demonstrate how it works. So he had a team of people. I was already, I already left by then. I was in Edmonton three years. I worked with him three years. And then I went back to Madison to study counseling. And, uh, and we continue work long distance. So the project that was going on was the multi-levelness project where they collected autobiographies from a num- great number of people, about over 80 of them, collected responses to what Dombrowski called verbal stimuli. Uh, he liked people who were he paid his, his clients, his patients, to write their autobiography, to write responses to items like what is great sadness, what is great joy, what is inner conflict, 
what is success and a few others like that. So the team was looking for autobiographies that could show the inner life at different levels. And so then they selected one to represent level one, they selected another one to represent level two, another one for three approximately, another one for four, and there was no case for level five. That took a while to find. So then this material was given to me to analyze in terms of Dombrowski's theory, which mean, meant to look at what expressions represent a level of development, what expressions represent overexcitability, and that kind of thing. In fact, the project, the interesting thing was that when he wrote up the project, he didn't have overexcitability included in it. He only looked for the levels and the dynamics that are characteristic of each level. And then for the higher level of development, he chose Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the French writer, and aviator. He was flying planes, flying mail in South America over the very dangerous mountains. And then he was flying mail in France. And then he took part in flying competitions around the world. So that material had to be analyzed in some way. And I got the idea that it should be divided into little units and each unit could be looked at what it expresses. And I described that process in the 1975 monograph. Uh, because, so that was process of content anal analysis, which I didn't know that such a thing existed at the time. And usually in content analysis, you use unit of the same size, but mine were flexible. I was cutting up the text into the smallest unit that remained intelligible. And then I was looking at each of these units and said, oh, maybe here's a dynamism. Oh, maybe here's overexcitability. And so the whole material was atomized and then it was reconstituted to see if we get the profiles of the levels. And to a large extent, it worked. So it was the first demonst empirical demonstration of how the theory works. And then from that work came other empirical tests. Uh, one of them was developing the formula for developmental potential. It turned out that whatever definitions of developmental potential you read, in this work, the frequency of dynamism and the frequency of our excitabilities in a given text was all that's needed to get a quantitative grip on developmental potential. And it really worked. It really worked. Because it was possible to de derive 
on the figure for development of for the autobiography and then from the verbal stimuli, and they agreed. And then Nombrowski had, actually I'm also talking about the level index. He had the level index from his neurological examination, and then all three agreed. So this was the empirical demonstration that you can calculate the level and the developmental potential from this kind of data. And this work has been totally overlooked, forgotten. By the way, I can mention that even though I was the only rater of the material, the was that the term internal consistency of it was in the in the nineties. Right. So that work turned into volumes one and two, and like you said, well, that, what I was talking about is volume two. Well, <clears throat> right. And then your 1975 monograph. But I wondered if you could say something also about your second dissertation, Formless Forms, because I could link to that in the show notes, and I think that people would enjoy reading it. It's interesting. Formless Forms was the peak of my intellectual life. While I was in the counseling department, and I had a nice assistantship, Every year in spring, we got a bunch of kids from different schools in Wisconsin who came to look at the university, and they were they were selected high-achieving students, high-ability, so they were gifted students. But each school selected them differently, and there were some very, very interesting kids among them. And I took the advantage and ask some of them to, I mean, those are nominated by my fellow colleagues' assistants. I had a list of those that were nominated as being interesting, gifted kids. Uh, I sent them the questions that uh, represented overexcitability that came from the volume two research. So I had a table of uh, manifestations of overexcitability that came from that work. And then from that table, I derived the questions to ask them. And there were 40, over 40 questions, open-ended. And they wrote answers. And some of them wrote on both sides of the page. It was It's a wonderful material. Very interesting. So... When I had the 1975 monograph written and submitted for publication, I came to my doctoral committee and I said, this is my doctoral work. It's pretty good to deserve a degree. And the people said, the professors said, that's very nice, but we don't know this theory. You really have to make a bridge for us and compare Dombrowski's theory with the theories that we know, theories in counseling, Rogerian, Maslow, Adler, and so on. Well, I didn't like that. I thought I had done pretty impressive work. And to ask me to do more work for my doctorate, I didn't do anything with it for a whole year. And then they said, well, it's time for you to really get out, so you better finish. And by nice synchrony, 
a compiled volume came out of Theories of Counseling and Therapy by Corsini, where everyone of the then current theories that included psychoanalysis, Jungian analysis, Adlerian approach, Rogerian approach, and so on, eclectic and rational emotive therapy. And anyway, there was a bunch of these um, theories that were then current, and each one had to write up according to the same outline to present the case example, to describe the main concept of the theory, to describe how counseling works, what's what are the methods. So that was very convenient to use to analyze the concepts and compare them with Dombrowski's theory. But that led me to the study of philosophy of science where people do the work on recognizing what makes a good concept. And the result was, I I think I created definitions for these things and criteria, criteria for examining theory. I think that was the major accomplishment there to present criteria for evaluating these theories of counseling and therapy. One was whether the concepts of the theory have a good form. We know that the good form of a concept means the concept can be operationalized. If it doesn't have good form, it's a hell of a problem to operationalize it. I mean, we use all the time very broad concepts that are very difficult to define, very difficult to operationalize, like culture, society, religion, and so forth, self even. And um, the result was that most of the theories had concepts that had very poor form. And the only ones that came out to have good form, in addition to Dombrowski's theory, was Jung's theory, behavioral theory, and... uh, The biggest struggle was with psychoanalytic theory because it's so dense and there's so many concepts. And at one point I finally realized that this is all smokescreen, that they have invented concepts for words and concepts we have in ordinary life. And it just, they don't mean anything more than we do. And I had to read some very confusing and logically ridiculous psychoanalytic treatises, which I then took time to make fun of in my dissertation. I loved reading your notebooks with your notes from that the reading that you did. It was so much fun. Michael, you're saying that you were doing a comparison between all that and Dabrowski's theories, and obviously you had problems with some of the concepts. How did you feel or find his theory stacked up to the others? You know, is there anything particularly personally that you like about the theory from that perspective? Well, because part of the theory is about the levels of development, but the other part is about the potential for development. The theory, therefore, has 
a good structure of a scientific theory because a theory not only describes, but offers means of explaining what it describes. And that's why I could see very early that this is a very good theory. It was just not very clearly presented in his writing. So it gives you the, the what, so the observation of the thing, but also the the why, the like, you know, how and yes. how it's happening. Yes, that's right. That's right. And that's why in, in Jung's theory, with all his archetypes and things like that, the best defined thing is the typology, the extroverted, introverted, intuitive, sensing, and so on. This, this is holding up and has held up for a long time. So in his theory, it was a good scientific kernel that many people did not want to recognize. In fact... The thing that uh, is worth mentioning is that there was a time when an edition of the most used textbook personality, there was one edition in which they omitted Jung's theory because they thought it was of no importance anymore. And were they ever wrong? The next edition had Jung back in the textbook. It was Holland Lindsay. So you have two papers that came out. Um, one is about rethinking level one, and the second one is about rethinking level two. And let's start with the first one. What helped you realize that it makes more sense to think of the levels as types of development rather than a progression of levels where you move from one to two to three? Well, one thing is that Dobrowski now and then spoke that the transition from level one to two is very difficult. And he also talked about the transition from level two to three being very difficult. And we have not studied these transitions and how would they, you know, how they take place and, and what, what is involved. At the time, well, the first effort was to define the levels, to put the dynamism in the proper places, and and then do the empirical research that I described that came out, it was the volume two was the was the the work and with the results of getting the quantitative empirical data from this whole research. So then when in response to this, talking about the theory, I could see that people were beginning to use the levels of boxes into which you put people or themselves and not look at the process. And when I was rereading his Polish on positive disintegration book for the disasters meeting in Colorado, when Linda Silverman wanted to br bring together those who are, were doing research on the Ruskis theory and all those orthodox people in Canada, I was rereading and I said, everywhere he emphasizes the process, the difference between unilevel and multilevel process. It's all dynamic. The levels, because they had to be defined, sort of stiffened the structure and got us away from remembering it's always a process. 
it's always dynamic living and changing and undergoing transformation and metamorphosis. And that's why it was illuminating to find some autobiographies, some life stories have a certain amount of change, but they don't make the transition to multi-level development. So there's kind of a unilevel growth that ends up at the border between the two and the transition zone and doesn't go further. And there are the others who have the developmental potential and move on and reach the higher level and keep going and growing. But it has been very difficult to get people back to always remember that the process comes first and the levels are convenient, theoretical convenience and research convenience. So then we don't all start at level one. No, we don't start at level one. Well, some of us start at level one. Lots of us start, but don't go very much further. Level one has limited developmental potential. We don't know whether it's limited in an absolute term or with limited because it cannot be unlocked. But that's the limitation. It's the ordinary living which can be enjoyable or can be a struggle for survival and very vulnerable to certain pressures. And the best understanding of what level one is about, there have been, there has been the research on um, people delivering electro, electroshocks to others. And then that research was found that some people refused to do that. Other people who went along with the researchers were experiencing growing inner conflict with the, the more the shocks were administered, the more the recorded screams were sent to them. They didn't know they were recorded. And then came Bandura with eight mechanisms of going around one's conscience. And that is very illuminating because all of us like to keep a good opinion of ourselves, that we are good people under all circumstances. And therefore, we're doing, we're doing harm to others, but it's to defend our country or because people in authority say that's a right thing to do, we follow the orders, then our conscience allows us to do it if we are at level one because we believe the authority. I would like to to actually get hold of these eight um, mechanisms because I don't remember them all always. Okay, yeah, go for it. The more I hear the whole this is a process thing and I think about like how fluid I think of this stuff now and how it shifts and moves. I'm like, man, those are those oily videos that I did, like they represented the theory, but uh, they don't represent my experience of it anymore, <laughs> of the thing. I know. Well, that's one of the dangers of doing this kind of work is that, you know, you, 
after a certain amount of time, you come back to it and you're like, oh, I've grown so much since then. Rachel was just telling him that yesterday about her episode. Because she was like, you know, now when I go back and listen, I feel a bit cringe about it. But and she just, you know, she was like, I just know that like I've had growth since then in my understanding. So, yeah, and that's just how it goes. Yeah, it's natural. I actually mentioned your video um, where you talked about the matrix yesterday because she was saying that she uses that with clients to help them understand the theory um that was exactly the video i was thinking about when i said oh man that's you know well right and but i think it's so common to come to this and like you know you try you you need something to help you wrap your head around it um but what he said that's why i wanted to get him to talk about the process of like unilevel and multi-level because you know i it's so important for our listeners to understand like there's so much more complexity to this yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's funny. A couple of people have recently contacted me and said, I, I use that Matrix video a lot. And I'm like, for all intents and purposes, it does sort of describe what's in the theory, but does it actually describe the well, processes I've experienced it? Maybe not. Maybe not so simply. It sounds like you need to do an update or like a follow-up, you know. You could make a video about what you've learned and like build okay. on it. I think I do. We should do a quick bite someday about this, like the relics of the past. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, they're just they're just like markers along the way, really. We do like we have covered this a couple of times to say I've learned a lot. Like when we did our birthday episode, we That's talked true. about it. Yeah. So you're right. I guess we've already talked about that. And I, I, I cancelled a video. I've only ever deleted one video. And it was oh, I remember the resource one. Resources and then replaced it with a, yeah, I'm embracing growth mindset a bit stronger and I'll, I'll put things on my website and change them when I need to because I've yeah. learned things. That's right. <clears throat> All right. Well, he's back with his papers. So ben, Bandura was a social behaviorist. That's what he called his, his work. Um he identified the mechanism of disengaging one's conscience. And the first one is moral justification, which takes place when, for example, one is persuaded that killing the enemy serves a higher moral purpose, such as protecting one's country. The other one that we're very familiar with is euphemistic labeling because this one serves to mask the true nature of unethical behavior. Like, for example, in a competitive situation, cheating becomes strategic misrepresentation. That was the, the eight mechanisms were, were in his textbook on, on social behaviors. I think that's what it was called. But then he wrote a whole book on the mechanism of moral disengagement. The third one is advantages comparison, because this serves to minimize reprehensible behavior by comparing it with someone else's actions, which are much worse. So therefore, I can say to myself, what I'm doing is not so bad as what they are doing, mm -hmm. and justifying it in this way. The fourth one is displacement of responsibility. 
And that's what happened in Milgram's experiment, the obedience experiment, because that's uncritically following orders. And that weakens personal restraints and lessens concern for the well-being of others. As Bandura said, obeying orders is not automatic. It requires strong sense of responsibility to be a good functionary. The self-system operates most efficiently in the service of authority when followers assume personal responsibility for being dutiful executors while relinquishing personal responsibility for the consequences of their behavior. So if you have an IRS agent dispossessing someone from their home, that would be a good functionary. Mm-hmm. Or other, you know, people who go after people's debts and things like that. The fifth one is diffusion of responsibility, and that takes place when a group as a whole decides on unethical action, though individually the group members would not agree to it. Or when they have to do a complex but harmful task, there's subdivision of labor so that each segment of the task does not have an obvious relationship to the harmful outcome. So you can ask yourself, you know, what is your conscience telling you if you're in a factory building bombs? The sixth one is this disregard or distortion of consequences. And that happens when harm is afflicted at a distance, which dropping bombs from a plane or shooting artillery is doing harm at a distance and not seeing the consequences of it. And killing people becomes very easy. Seventh is dehumanization, which has been practiced by all colonizers. It shuts off one's conscious when those who are harmed are seen as less than human, which has happened in history so many times. Or when, when prejudice, by prejudice denigrates minorities and refuses them equal rights. That's dehumanization. Right. But Bandura had interesting things to say about it. In contemporary life, uh, there are conditions conducive to treating things in an impersonal way and just de- ending up in dehumanizing. So he talks about bureaucratization, automation, urbanization, and high social mobility lead people to relate to each other in anonymous, impersonal ways. And finally, the eighth one is attribution of blame, which is, we are very familiar with it, blaming the victim. The mistreated are seen as deserving the mistreatment or as having been brought or having brought it upon themselves. And this is, this is to me, the most mind-blowing insight into how level one works. People live regular lives and, and have families, have children. They love children, they love their relatives, but under conditions that he describes, they can do harm to others and still believe that they are good people because it's so important to us to think of ourselves as being good persons. So I think that really illuminates what Dombrowski was 
putting together in one big category of level one. You never spend time describing it, never spend time talking much about it. Uh, it's, it's an undeveloped part of his theory, so that's what I try to do in my paper. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is more a mental note for us that we could do a whole episode on that. Everything, every one of those attributes, we see this today. Like I know some of the examples that Michael just gave are like, you know, maybe war-related and stuff. This shit still goes ahead on the internet today, mm-hmm. particularly yeah. around discussions about women and stuff. Reddit, Twitter, you see them all out there. And every attribute you see, you see as a tactic, how people like, you know, they're doing things from a distance and they're still dehumanizing. And I'm like, my mind is blowing up at the moment because if if we want to talk about the relevance of this theory, you could go on Twitter now and pull up a hundred examples of this stuff still going on of people doing this stuff on the internet and then just going back to their lives and going, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, okay, I said some hateful stuff on the internet. doesn't matter. Yeah, that's, that's, that's why it is called the dog-eat-dog world. Yes, it is. So you talk about the levels as whole universes. Whole universe. Well, because so much happens. You know, people's lives go on and a lot happens and – in in uh, you have a whole stratification of people on level one, the extreme one that some people are fond of talking about the psychopath, but they only consider like one or two percent to um, although they they have enormous uh, influence by the enormous harm they do. Well, the uh, the other thing to dissuade people from thinking that level one is the beginning, the primary integration, that's why I say primary integration is not primary because it's not the starting point, because it cannot be the starting point because developmental potential is too limiting. Well, I, I just, I mean, my question about the levels as universes is that there are just so many different ways that development can look within each of these levels. And so, you know, with your second rethinking paper, you did a great job, I think, of showing, you know, based on these three studies that you used, um, how unilevel development can look and that it's not always in a disintegration, um, but it, that it's worthy of respect. I think that's, yeah, that looking at, at um, I mean, the, the inside, the aha came with the book by Belenki and, and others, this wonderful team. Oh, Women's Ways of Knowing. Women's Ways of Knowing, where they interviewed over 100 women and, and, and used a different kind of um, typology of ways of thinking. All of a sudden, what popped up was there was change, there was inner growth, there was a reaching for a sense of self, and yet it all was not having the characteristics of higher and lower in oneself, but just coming to a sense of myself as a person. And so that showed me that, that each of this level is really a very broad universe of developmental paths, and there's a lot there to study. 
One more thing that I want to ask you about these papers is one criticism that I've seen about them and your motivation is that you were criticizing Dabrowski by writing these papers. But it seems to me that you were just trying to build on the theory and elaborate on it. And it, in my view, shouldn't be looked at as you criticizing him. Well, the only criticism was that I said he didn't spend any time on these two levels. Really. I mean, uh, we look at his definition and the amount of space he devotes to devoted to unilateral cases and things like that is minimal. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a criticism. It's not really criticism. Maybe stating the fact that he didn't devote much attention to it. That's one. And the other thing is uh, that it really it's filling in the blanks. Since he spent so much time on it, well, there are others of us who have to fill in the blanks, understand there is a unilever process. People go through it. It's developmental, but it doesn't have the characteristics of lower and higher in oneself. It's, it's different, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and it deserves consideration. But so much of what I have seen in this history, people coming in contact with Dombrowski's theory was looking with their nose down on level two. Yes. Instead of looking at it with understanding. So this, yeah, this is wonderful, wonderful qualitative study. Um, women's ways of knowing was a breakthrough. And then... And then one was Perry. One was Perry. But and Perry, the other one was Deborah Roof. And another one was Deborah Roof, that's right. Deborah Roof. Oh, we don't need to go into details of Perry's scheme. Right. Well, I'll link to the papers in the show notes so that people can check them out. Yeah. Deborah Roof's study was a selection of highly gifted adults and finding them at all levels. Mm-hmm. So in other words, gifting that doesn't protect you from maybe being only at level one. But she, I don't think she found any genuine level ones. It was more... Those operating level ones were really harmed in their development. So trauma led them to be that way. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's worth saying that her she has a new book that just came out, and we're hoping to have her as a guest pretty soon. Yeah. Well, this leads me into wondering what topics or areas of research you think are most important to follow up on from the work that's already been done. One thing that comes to mind is transforming versus conserving growth was an interesting thing that you've... It's a very interesting thing because it came out so clearly. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty is that you have to have this extensive material, you know, autobiographical material to to see uh, whether there is the movement forward or not and what kind of movement forward there is to distinguish the unilever from the multilevel process. And so the, there is quite a bit of people that actually uh, reach the transition, the, the transition zone between unilever and multilevel and haven't gone further. So one example is from Barry Grant's work, his dissertation on 
cases of moral development when when you had someone dedicated to world without war, which is very high ideal. But in his personal growth, he has not gone into multi-level process. And yet he his whole life the work was devoted to bring about higher ideals into in the world without war. Ah, it seems so distant today. Sadly. And I know it's a bit of a tangent. <laughs> Probably a bit lame, but I just want to ask Michael what he thought of Dabrowski as a person and you know, what what was he like and was obviously you learnt from his theory, but is there anything that you learned from him as just a man and the way he went about his life? Can you talk about just your experiences with him as a, a person for a bit? Well, he was a very dynamic person and um, it was exciting to be with him because everything with him had a great sense of urgency and it was natural to respond to it and and want to work with him and uh, on it um at the same time his estimation of the amount of work for a given task or problem he thought something could take a few days when I so clearly it would take weeks. <laughs> it was good to be with him because it was always a lively discussion, always interesting questions were considered. And also he talked about his personal experiences of seeking his guidance, his personal development in Eastern traditions. Can you pronounce his whole name for our listeners, please? Kazimierz Dombrowski. Um, Michael, you were saying about how your work kind of fills in the blanks and I'm very much on board with that perspective because one person can only do so much in one lifetime and um, I, I personally take the opinion that you know, anyone who sort of challenges this is maybe only thinking of positive disintegration as theory and not as a phenomenon to be like observed and for other people to add to the body of knowledge. So what would you say to people now who are, you know, looking at the theory um, and looking at positive disintegration as an experience and just, you know, anyone who sort of, making content or writing or researching in this area? Well, there are some studies that have to be replicated and done better and on on larger form of data because I I think the the study by, by Kathy Catherine Lisi on comparing Jung's theory with Dombrowski's theory has yielded very important results. One, that the overexcitabilities and the Jungian functions are different things. They're, they're very different things. The other result, which is so very important, is that all overexcitabilities correlate with level of development. 
to a diff- different degree, but they all are involved. The, also, the result that, uh, which some people think, because Dombrowski was sometimes inclined to speak in these terms, that sensual and psychomotor excitability sort of kind of prevent uh, development to higher levels. It is that they don't prevent it. If they're all alone, they cannot do it. Uh, it's just the, the weakness of emotional intellectual overexcitability that is the crit- criterion of not being able to advance. Mm-hmm. It's not that there is there is uh, some kind of a damping thing from sensual cycle, but this has to be replicated. This study has to be replicated. And and another thing is the missing the missing element in Dombrowski's theory that should be there is intuition. I cannot imagine anyone going through multi-level process to a higher level like four and five and not being in an intuitive person in Jungian sense. And Dombrowski mentioned intuition often, but he never put it into his theory. And I think it's a missing component. Yeah, I like that. I hope that people will listen and think about doing research. Well, not that everybody who listens is a researcher, but, you know, some are. So one more thing that I want to ask you about before we let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. Is UNASA. This past summer, you retired after doing every camp since 2002. And we've done an episode, the two of us, to talk about UNASA after West. And the pressure from the kids is part of why you agreed to do this episode. And so, can you just say something about UNASA? I know it must be a highlight of your life and career to have had the opportunity to work with these amazing young people. Do you have any thoughts? Do you want to just say hello to the kids? or? Well, I can always say it. I mean, it would be wonderful to say hello to the kids if anyone were <laughs> ever to listen to, to this. Of course, no question about it. Um, it was an interesting growth. We were we were started with some trepidation when when we met together, Patty Garawald and then Stephanie Tolan and myself. We were there with Betsy Jones to start the first UNASA in Michigan in 2002. We had only 15 kids. We divided into three groups. And at a certain point, we since we haven't met them, we didn't know how it was going to go. And we had to tell ourselves we know how to do it. <laughs> because we have put things into place, and he tested it out. And um, I remember how, you know, we start the first day, you don't know how it went, you think about the problems that might still arise or that have arisen and things like that. And I remember telling them that psychosynthesis works, They're the techniques for personal growth, that psychosynthesis works, don't, don't fret, no. Mm-hmm. And then we got more the next year and more the next year, and it kept growing and couldn't find better confirmation of that it, it's meeting its goals of assisting personal growth and the kids are so eager to be there again the next summer and the summer after next, and then they are eager to become counselors. And also how 
many of them and their parents say it was the best thing for the child. Well, psychosynthesis does work. Yes, it does work. It does work. So, yeah, it's an amazing history because it's 20-some years, 34 camps, lots of extraordinary kids from very sensitive to those who are oblivious to everything around them, and yet growing out of it eventually by finding themselves in that safe environment, non-judgmental, very essential. It's a non-judgmental environment. So not everyone feels they can be themselves the first time they, they come, because everyone has to feel the waters, almost always feel they can be themselves sooner or later. Well, good job. It's a really magical place, and it's been a real privilege working there with you. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. I feel like we should probably let you off the hook now. It's good to be off the hook. I can tell. Do you have one more question? I have one more thing, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. You can run away, but... I just we've we've tried to get you on the podcast for a while, and I know you listen every now and then. I just want to know if there's anything that you wanted to say about Chris and I and what what we're doing, and I don't know thoughts, good, bad. I don't I don't care. I'm just curious as to what you think of this little. The evidence is clear. You know, you're doing a good work. Because if you have a response of people who like them, there's a growing uh, listenership, and it will keep on growing. So definitely, you are to be commended for starting it and growing the material base of available topics. Well, thank you. That's it. You can go now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Michael. Okay. I don't want to ask anything more after he said something so nice. That's funny. Well, that's the end of our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Special thanks to Chris for arranging this. And thanks to Michael for joining us. We wish you a very happy 90th birthday. And thank you to you, our listeners. As always, we appreciate you very much. Continue your path to authenticity through the links in the show notes. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter for stacks of cool things delivered straight to your inbox. Explore the Dabrowski Centre, email us, or join us on social media. And don't forget to show your love by liking, subscribing, grabbing some positive disintegration merch, or leaving us a rating or review on your podcast platform.